Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another edition of the All In Podcast. We made it to episode two, which means we're doing something right. Okay, we got a great episode for you today. We're going to start with our cold open, and then we go into a full discussion with Sam King. He covers Purdue Boilermakers for the journaling carrier up north in West Lafayette. He's going to talk to us about what to expect from Ryan Walter's first season at the helm of the program and why this team might not be taking too big of a step back from when Jeff Brown was there. So do not want to miss that. It's a great conversation coming up after this. So we're going to start with our cold open today. Um, and today we're going to be talking about realignment. Okay. Now I saw a post on X the other day. We're just going to get used to calling it X. Okay. I, I know it's Twitter, but you know what I mean? Saying this is the last season of regular college football. This is the last season of college football as we know it. I thought that was weird because it's not. <laughs> yes, college football is changing, but it's not the end. It's not going to change how we watch it. It's not going to change how much we watch it. It's not going to change how much we love it. It's going to change the teams that are playing every single year. But outside of that, that's about it. And I think this kind of topic around realignment, a lot of people are sitting back and saying, we don't like this. We don't like this change. It's not that you don't like realignment. You don't like change because football is what you know and the teams that you've grown up watching is what you know, especially if you're on the West Coast and back to well. Imagine if Big Ten came out and said, IU and Illinois aren't going to play every year. Are you heartbroken? No, but you're kind of sitting back and saying, well, it's different, so I don't like it. That's why we're uncomfortable with the realignment. That's why we're talking about it as much as we are. It's because people are uncomfortable about it. But I want to try to change your perspective here. I want to try to show you how I've been thinking about it because – I think there is a similar here. And I, I, I don't know if you guys know this about me. I, I love analogies, okay? I'm going to use analogies a lot in this podcast. I use analogies all the time in daily-to-day conversation. I think it just, I don't know why I love them. Last week, Subway, $5 foot long, terrible commercials with all these pro athletes. Subway has been a family-owned business for 60 years until last week. They sold to a private equity firm called Rourke Capital for $9.6 billion. I'm, I'm pulling the... Uh, Kelly School business marketing minor skills out for you here. Okay. So bear with me. Subway 60 years was family owned selling to a private equity firm, which is totally different. And for those of you who know business, it's kind of like, oh my gosh, family owned business lasting that long anyway, becoming that successful, being a family owned business and now selling to the guys on wall street. What's that about Rourke? Let me tell you a little bit about them. This capital private equity firm. Worth $37 billion. Do you know what they own? They own mainly fast food franchises. Those including Arby's, Auntie Anne's, Buffalo Wild Wings, Sonic, other fast food chains that were, yes, at one time previously family owned, but have been since acquired by this private equity firm and since have just blown up. Their franchise locations have popped up everywhere. They've adjusted business plans, business strategies, marketing campaigns. This private equity firm is seen as the industry leader in being able to develop franchises and get them from family owned to nationally owned and being able to basically manage them better than they are being managed. And Subway's numbers are declining. A lot of people said $9.6 billion for Subway was too much considering that Subway has gone downhill significantly in the past five years. They've cut the $5 foot long because they couldn't keep up with prices. They aren't doing as well as like a Jimmy John's because let's be honest, Jimmy John's is more fresh than Subway. Subway's product was not doing well, but this company bought it for that much. Why? Because they're going to transform it into something different, something that we are going to be seeing being changed. They're going to change Subway's strategy, Subway's look, Subway's curb appeal, Subway's franchising opportunities, Subway's franchisee locations. They might change the way Subway looks. 
to adapt to a 21st century model compared to when it was built 60 years ago. The point being, things change. And when you look at the reports and the articles about this subway acquisition by Roar Capital, people aren't out tweeting and writing, why is Subway doing this? How could the family give up on this old tradition? Are people crying in the street and crying at tailgates about how this tradition is now dead? The Subway is no longer family owned? No, because Subway is still around. Subway is still going to be making sandwiches. Subway is still going to be doing what they do. In fact, they actually might become better because if you look at Rourke Capital's history as a private equity firm, when they acquire franchises, they develop them and they make them better and they change a few things. But usually those the changes they make are for the better. How is college football different? Look at the Pac-12. Pac-12 is your family-owned business, if you would, okay? They've had two college football playoff uh, appearances in the 10 years that the college football playoff has been a thing. And in those two appearances, they were rather lackluster. Oregon made it to the championship game and got mutilated by an Ohio State team that barely made the playoff, if you might remember. And Washington, I don't even think got there. So you have a Washington team and an Oregon team. You've never got USC there, which was your big moneymaker. Utah has had success as a program, but has never been able to cross that border. Don't get me started on Arizona, Arizona State. Pac-12 was not doing well financially when it comes to football because the Pac-12 was not doing well when it came to football. And so now you kind of sit back and you look at the Big Ten and you look at Big Ten acquiring Washington, Oregon, USC, UCLA. Are they more? Is Washington or Oregon more successful than Utah has been in the past two, three years? I don't think so when you look at the average amount of wins per year. But what do Washington, Oregon, USC, and UCLA all do? They bring in money. Two of those teams are in the L.A. area. Two of them are on the northwest coast. So the Big Ten now has spread its TV market and viewership ratings from quite literally coast to coast, adding new revenue, adding new advertisement partners. The people who are paying for regional sports networks in California are now going to be paying for Big Ten Network regional advertising platforms. Why? Because they're expanding. And for that reason, Big Ten makes more money. The Big Ten's going to change the way maybe Washington, Oregon, UCLA, and UCS, USC, excuse me, I'm going to get better at saying that. It's going to change the way they operate. It's going to change the way they schedule. It's going to change the way their fans look at things. We're adapting. We're changing. Change is good. Change is necessary because if we stay the same in everything that we do, we're not growing. We're not evolving. So yes, is it different? Absolutely it's different. But that's college football, baby. That's why we love it. Because it changes. Because it adapts. Because it evolves. Big Ten is going to be different. You now just added four West Coast teams. It's going to have a different style. It's going to have a different pace. It's going to be a different attention. Are we all excited to watch Penn State play Washington? No, but am I going to watch it anyway? Yeah, I am. Because you want to know why? Because I love college football. So you're sitting back and you're saying, man, this isn't good. This is bad. I'm not a fan of realignment. I just wish everyone would stay the same. It's not an option. Change is necessary to for the business models that they are making. And right now, Pac-12 was not surviving as a business. And let me tell you something, in case you haven't heard it yet, college athletics is a business. Okay? 
we talked yesterday, we talked the other day with Zach Osterman about just how paying players isn't quite inevitable yet, but we are getting there. The business is changing and you either change with it or you get stuck behind. And that's why realignment is happening. So no, the traditions are not dying. College football is not changing. It's not going to be not normal anymore. It's evolving. And we got to evolve with it to stay ahead of the game. So that was cold open. Coming up now, let's talk to the Purdue Boilermakers beat writer, Sam King, about what he can expect from the Boilermakers this year. And could they be taking not too big of a step back after losing Jeff Brom to Louisville? Here's that interview with Sam King right now. All right. Joining us now on the podcast, he writes for a journal and carrier up there in West Lafayette. It's Sam King joining us. Sam, how you doing? Doing wonderful. It's uh, almost officially game day of week one. So that's always an exciting time. Everybody right now is undefeated and, and feeling like they've got a championship team. So uh, I think that's where, where we are right now. Yeah, that's what I love about preseason stuff is because it's like even the coaches who I think deep down know they have a team that's going to maybe win two or three games are talking like they have a championship caliber team. And it's always just fun kind of seeing because everyone's got that hope. And it's, you know, the hope that kills you sometimes. But it's fun because there's no wins or losses. There's no hard questions quite just yet. So you are right there. It is exciting. It's been quite to put it delicately, the offseason for the Purdue Boilermakers, you, just as far as a roller coaster goes, I mean, just going back to last December, you're playing in a Big Ten championship, and then all of a sudden, the world comes crashing down. You know, Jeff Brown decides to leave for Louisville. You have to do a coaching search. You fall to LSU in the bowl, cheese it bowl, and then you are now hiring this new young guy that not a lot of people know about. I know you were there for all of it. What was that December like? I mean, just kind of as a reporter, as a journalist covering that, where it's kind of like that period of time where every single day it's something new. Yeah, and uh, to be honest, I took over the the football duties uh, right after the Big Ten championship game. So it was Saturday, play Michigan. Sunday, I'm taking over football, and Purdue's learning its bowl um, opponent, where the Boilermakers will be going. And then Monday morning is a press conference supposed to be about playing LSU in the Cheese at Citrus Bowl. And that morning, Louisville's coach leaves. So I show up to this press conference fully expecting to talk about LSU. And it becomes something totally different with athletic director Mike Wobinski, uh, Jeff Brom. And, you know, we were advised before it starts. Um, we know what's going on at Louisville. We're not answering questions about that. Um, but, you know, as part of my job, I have to ask, um, even if I have to phrase it in a, a different way. So I did ask Jeff Brom if, if Louisville had reached out to him about uh, the position. And he said he said no, which maybe it's a lie. Maybe at that time it, it was still so fresh that it hadn't happened. But uh, the end goal there, the assumption was always that Purdue was a launching pad to, to get into a Power 5 program until – he was ready to go become Louisville's head coach. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Uh, you know, many thought that was going to happen a, a couple of years earlier, and, and it did not because Purdue had uh, found the, the money that would keep him in West Lafayette. Uh, probably was the best thing for him because he, he now goes to a Louisville program that I think is maybe more ready to um, take off and win, but also did a lot of great things in those couple of years at Purdue, got to the Big Ten championship game, which 
probably was a pipe dream when last season started for for fans. If you would have said this team's going to win the West Division and go to the the Big Ten Championship game, a lot of fans would have would have signed up for it immediately. So you go from that to now there's an interim coach for the bowl game, and then there's a new head coach in in the process of all of that getting hired. Um, so you have somebody who basically is just there to coach one game, a new head coach who's in the building but doesn't want to intervene on you know, what last season was, but you know, hey, that that's the guy in charge now. So uh, who are you answering to? And then on top of that, you all of a sudden start getting a lot of transfers in. Then you get guys departing to go somewhere else. The, the coaching staff that was taking over was meeting with players and saying, hey, we don't really feel like we have a spot for you. Maybe it's in your best interest to jump in that transfer portal and see what's out there for you, things like that. So it was a, a very busy off season. And you come into the spring last year, uh, with an entirely new coaching staff and with a roster that uh, in a lot of ways didn't look like the roster of the team of a year ago. I'll never forget that Monday. And I didn't even know it was you. You were the one who asked about Louisville because at the, at the time, Sam, I was working at a TV station down in Louisville and we were covering the Satterfield stuff. And, and when Satterfield announced it was leaving, it was like within two minutes of the announcement that I get on Twitter and see somebody's already suggesting Jeff Brom. So it was kind of like all of our minds immediately went to, okay, now is it time from the Louisville side of things? And I remember watching you ask that question in that press conference because we were all watching it live to see what he would say. And I, I remember him, I remember like sitting back and saying like, okay, it, you know, you sometimes hear coaches when they're asked about coaching vacancies, you know, sometimes they leave it very vague and I'm not going to comment which usually means there's something going on underneath the water, I think. And then there's other coaches who are just undoubtedly committed to the program. I'm not looking, I'm going to be the head coach here next year. Kind of that kind of confidence. I felt like with Braun, the big takeaway I remember having from watching it was that wasn't a no. It wasn't a, it wasn't a for sure undoubtedly like no. And he's like always kind of flirted. I remember like a year prior to this happening, he was speaking at an event in Louisville for some football conference. And he said he wouldn't say no then either. So it was just kind of like always an idea, I think, in the back ahead, his head, um, I should say, about maybe getting back there someday. And, you know, you like to see a coach go home, but I think it's, especially when I think it's difficult for a lot of Purdue fans, when you finally get to that level, you finally win that Big Ten West division, you finally get to that Big Ten title, you go against the Michigan team that ends up making the playoff, but you finally felt like they'd found their footing under Brahma. There was momentum, and then to have it yanked under you is difficult. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and you know, he had a lot of success here. Um, I think that when you look at what he accomplished with what, the realistic expectations of, of Purdue is, um, you know, it's Purdue's never going to be Ohio State, never going to be Michigan, Penn State. Um, so, you know, the, about probably last season, as good as you could hope for. But, um, you know, Jeff Brown was in a lot of ways kind of heartbroken when he had to turn down Louisville the, the time previously. Um, and it was just, I think, probably at that time, a business decision. And also he felt like there was unfinished business at Purdue. Like he went there to accomplish what this team did last year. And then, you know, after getting to that Big Ten championship game and, uh, you know, getting to a January 2nd bowl game, I think he felt like, okay, that's probably the ceiling for for what you can do here, or at least I can leave here feeling satisfied. Like I did help elevate this program. So whoever succeeds me 
can kind of take it and hopefully keep the ground running. And I, I don't know this. I haven't talked to Jeff Brom since he left, to be honest, but I wholeheartedly believe that he'll probably be watching Purdue's results this year because there's still some of his guys playing for this team and, and be rooting for those guys to win a lot of football games. Knowing Jeff Brown, just from the few conversations I had with him, I think he is. He does have a huge heart for Purdue. He was very gracious about his time there. I, I undoubtedly suspect that he will be watching Purdue very closely and be cheering from afar. I, I want to talk about the new guy, though, Ryan Walters. I, I'm going to be honest. When I think I had the same reaction a lot of people had when they heard the hire being made. We were all kind of like, wait, who is that? Um and I think a lot of Purdue fans were kind of feeling the same way. Like, who is this guy? Find out he's the D.C. from Illinois. Illinois made a huge jump defensively, especially the Big Ten Conference just a year, you know, just a year ago. In his two years that he was there, fourth youngest coach in FBS. And now when I talk to Purdue fans, the big thing I'm getting is they've kind of had a perspective shift in the sense that they love the young energy. They love the passion he's bringing. It seems like the players really bond with him to a fan to like where a lot of the Purdue fans I've been chatting with are actually really excited for this. Game. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry here. I'm getting a bunch of work chats. So I'm going to mute this real quick. Um, you're good. You're absolutely right. And when this happens, um, one of my jobs is, uh, you need to compile a list of candidates and get that posted online. And for whatever reason, uh, I threw Ryan Walters on there at the end and was like, you know, here's a guy that went to Illinois. The defense was ranked second, I think, nationally last year. If Purdue, and I said at, at the time, if Purdue wants to shun its typical offensive-minded head coach and and go defensive, um, this is a guy that maybe is ready to to go dip his toes into head coaching. But didn't think anything more of it. Just thought. You know, here's a, you know, if you're just compiling a list of names, here's an intriguing name. And then you hear that he's being brought in for an interview. Then you hear that uh, it sounds like this is going to be the head coach. And uh, the instant reaction, you're right, is, is Purdue fans either were like, we don't know who this is, or this isn't, you know, we want to see an offense that's going to air the ball out, you know, cradle quarterbacks, scoring a lot of points. That's what we're about. We're not about going out and, and winning 17 to 14 games, uh, which is kind of what Illinois was doing uh, at times last year. Uh, and so I, I don't think it was met with like, oh, this is the guy that's going to come and you know be the savior of the program or elevate it from what uh, Jeff Brom had done in his tenure. Uh, just wasn't met with a great reaction from a lot of people. But he's, as you mentioned, uh, I think he's 37 years old now. He was 36 when he was hired. He's young. He's energetic. Uh, he appeals, I think, to 18 to 22 year olds probably better than Jeff Brom did. Um, the players uh, pretty quickly took to him, felt like, hey, this is a guy that I can go talk to about my problems because whatever reason, you know, I'm a young African-American man and he kind of understands what my situation is or whatever it might be. There's, it feels like there's been a lot more connect between head coach, assistant coaches and the players because the staff he assembled is, is mostly a lot of young guys who were probably on the fast track to being head coaches just just like he was and uh you know that that trickled down to the players that just you know it, it feels like there's a, a togetherness and i know they haven't played a game yet so there's not really been a whole lot of adversity or you don't see how the players react when things aren't going well uh thus far but um there is a lot of appeal that way and then when coach walters got out in the community and started meeting people and shaking hands and signing footballs and, and posters and things like that. And, and people got to know him. They're kind of like, 
you know, this, this guy does know football and, um, you know, he's, he's done probably what he should have done as a head coach. I thought he was going to come in here and run the defense and think more on that side of the ball, but he's hired coordinators and uh, assistant coaches and put them in place and said, I'm a head coach. I oversee everything, but I've got to let Kevin Kane run that defense. Even if I want to have some input, you know, I'll make some suggestions, but it's his defense. Graham Harrell is running the offense. And if I see something, I might say something, but I'm, he, you know, he has the right mindset. I'm going to see, oversee this whole thing and let my coaches coach. Uh, and that's, you know, a, a great approach because I think a lot of first time head coaches, especially people who get hired uh, pretty young, kind of want to do it all and, and think they can do it all. And uh, he's got a lot of trust in the people that he hired, which you certainly hope he does. You bring up a good point there, just about getting out in the community and getting out West Lafayette, meeting donors, meeting alumni, meeting former players, current players. Do you think that's like an undervalued part of like what it means to be a head coach in a major conference like the Big Ten? If you kind of have to play the politician role a little bit and go shake the hands, kiss the babies, like do the thing and get that public persona first before you can really dive into the results oriented football, because, you know, there is a transition period there. Yeah, uh, especially going into your first year and when you have no no background, it's not like he came from another Power 5 school where he was hugely successful as a head coach. Um, you got to get people on board. And at the same time all of this is happening, Purdue is renovating that stadium, asking for yeah. money, asking for, you know, we need tens of millions of dollars for this and that. And uh, so you want those donors to believe, you know, if I'm investing in this, I want to know that it's going to be a winning product or something I can be proud of. And, uh, you know, you can only go back to Drew Brees so many times and ask for millions of dollars. Um, you got to find some other people that are willing to step up and help with some of those renovations. So uh, I think that was a big part. I know that, uh, you know, he's, he was busy more so doing some of that stuff initially than he was recruiting or coaching and meeting some of the younger guys. And that's why when it got to spring football, he was kind of just it was a sigh of relief. It was almost like, OK, now I can go coach. Uh, I've done the you know the community stuff, but still he was, uh, and I'm sure it was locally sponsored and such, but he was going out to a, a local restaurant every week where fans could come in and sit down and, and chat with him and about the team and about things like that. He would bring in a couple players each week to, to that place. Uh, so, you know, you get a line of fans, which is good for the business in the building, um, hopefully buying some food while they're there, but they're getting to interact with the players and, and the coach and, uh, just kind of get that sense or the belief that like, okay, this guy's all right. You know, we, we're on board with this guy and, you know, you kind of have to be now because whether you like it or not, he's, he's the head coach. But I think he has definitely swayed a lot of those people initially who thought this isn't a good hire to thinking, you know, this is a young energetic dude that's going to come in here and put a different perspective on Purdue football that might be a good thing, might be a great change for this program. And you don't see a lot of coaches doing that anymore too. I mean, you don't see coaches – getting out in the community, like willing to sit down and talk to the craziness that is Big Ten football. You just don't see that. So it's pretty awesome. Like a guy who's young, hungry, 37 now, getting out and spending that time with the community. And I'm sure that results in buy-in, like you said. Talk to me about his on-football stuff. I know preseason and all that kind of happens over the next coming months in the spring. But now that we're really gearing up for week one, what kind of identity do you see this team having under this new head coach? Well, it's, uh, I guess it's to be determined, but uh, defensively, really everything that they're doing has been kind of kept secret. And 
maybe that's the one advantage Purdue has going into a week one game is there's no film on this group of guys playing together and what they're doing. You can go see what Graham Harrell did with West Virginia last year. You can go see what Illinois did defensively last year, but the personnel is different. Um, and probably some of the, the ways and with that personnel uh, that Purdue will do things will differ from what those programs did. But uh, I think it's going to be a, a, at least offensively a team that once Graham Harrell was hired as the offensive coordinator and those people that were like, you know, Purdue is an air it out team, score lots of points on offense type. I think a lot of people breathe a sigh of relief, like, okay, this is in line with who we are. This is a guy that's going to come in here. He's going to install the air raid offense. We're still going to throw the ball over the field, um, get a lot of weapons, um, the football in space. And so that was kind of like, um, you know, maybe the first initial turning point of like, we're not a defensive identity football team first where, you know, offense is, is who we are. And, and Graham Harrell brought that. So it's like, okay, that part's taken care of. Now the defense is going to be kind of a lot different looking. I think the way it was run at Illinois was you had three guys down on the line and uh, it was kind of designed to look like something it wasn't. So the quarterback couldn't watch film, go out there and look at what he's facing across the, the line of scrimmage and say, okay, I know what these guys are doing because it all, becomes kind of chaos in some way once the ball is snapped. So I think there's a chance to really uh, have different identities offensively and defensively, but as a whole, um, you know, and I know they still haven't played a game yet. It's, it's impressive how collective this team feels like, you know, the guys are all talking about other guys when you interview them after practice, you know, so-and-so, you know, he made an amazing catch today. This guy, that guy. Um, yeah. I'm competing with this guy for a job, but you know, he's my best friend. And if I beat him, he's going to be happy for me. If he beats me out for the spot, uh, vice versa. So I think that's maybe right now what the identity is, is how connected this team is, considering that a lot of them have been brought in here as transfers or are playing new positions or were guys that were backups last year, getting their, their first opportunity to really showcase what they can do. Um, they, they haven't played a lot of football together, but at the same time, you go through all of spring, you go through all of fall, you feel like you've played a lot of football together by that point when you get to the first game. Do you think it will be difficult for, for somebody in Walter's position coming off of a coach that literally just made the Big Ten title game before bolting for his hometown? Do you think it's difficult to escape that shadow of Jeff Brown and kind of create something new? Will that be a tough adjustment or is that something that he's just not even focused on? Yeah, um, they are night and day different as far as people and probably coaching philosophies. But when Joe Tiller retired and you go to Danny Hope and then after that, um, you know, Daryl Hazelwood, whoever it might have been, it was always that, you know, Joe Tiller had so much success that for years Purdue fans have been wanting. And, that you know, once you get that, that becomes, okay, now this is the expectation. You know, we yeah. went to a Rose Bowl. We... Uh, go to bowl games every year. That that was the Purdue fan base mindset. So when that's not happening, it was like, you know, why can't you do what Joe Tiller did? He proved that you can win with this program and and be successful and win a Big Ten championship and things of that sort. So, uh, you know, every four or five years, it seemed like Purdue would shock Ohio State. But other than that, wasn't a whole lot of of high points at times. Um, and then there was the you know the years that Daryl Hazel was coached that you'd go to the stadium on Saturday and it'd be half full or even less than half full. And um, you just kind of felt like, man, how did this program fall so far so fast? 
And, you know, Jeff Brom did reinvigorate that to where the stadium was packed again. And uh, fans are saying, yeah, we're back where we were. We're competing for a Big Ten championship. We're going to bowl games. So I think if you don't come in and kind of at least win, you know, a few games early, um, maybe get to a bowl in, in year one, um, fans might be quick to be like, uh, you know, this isn't what we expected here. Um, and I truly believe that um, even though the coaches that came in here said, you don't have to rebuild this program. It was in the Big Ten championship game last year. Um, the first thing you did was go out and, and get a new quarterback um, from Texas. Yeah. So that says, you know, we need to bring our own people in here and kind of redefine this program. So um, there will be people who, there's always going to be people, people regardless who are naysayers every time you lose a game, like that shouldn't have happened. But people also forget that Purdue, uh, blew a game at Syracuse last year that it probably should have won. Um, Purdue looked, um, you know, mostly poor against Florida Atlantic. And I know that Aiden O'Connell didn't play quarterback that game, but still it was uh, a game early in the season that you sneak out a win and, and fans were kind of like, uh, I don't know if this team has it. And it's a long season. And, and the people who were patient saw the payoff in the end. But um, I think that there's probably uh, some need to start out well this year especially Purdue plays four of its first five games at home you've got to win like three of those games to kind of put yourself in a situation where you're competing for uh bowl eligibility probably when you get towards the, the later stages of the season you, you just touched on the new quarterback there Hudson Card he was one of the top transfers in the portal after you know all the quarterback dynamic drama that's going on in Texas so he comes into the program. He tags up with a new OC in Graham Harrell. What is this offensive identity? We know it's not going to look like Jeff Brown. It's going to look a little different, but still you think there might be some firepower there. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I think at running back, uh, the team is stacked. Uh, Devin Mockaby was a, a blessing in disguise last year, a guy that was a, a freshman walk-on that had probably entered the season thinking, I'm never going to get an opportunity to play this season or or ever maybe. and he gets a chance against Indiana State just because it's it's a blowout and he looks pretty good. And then somebody gets hurt and then somebody else gets hurt. And it's like, OK, let's see what you can do. And, and he almost rushes for a thousand yards in basically eight games. Uh, and immediately the, the first order of business when Ryan Walters was hired was he had a team meeting. He went in there and said, where's Devin? And Maccabee stands up and he says, you're on scholarship. So he wasted no time saying, you know, that, that guy has to be a part of our our plan moving forward. And then one of the, the other first things he did was, uh, and uh, you know, it's a great story is he hires Graham Harrell, shows up at an airport with a producer in hand, says, here, put this on. And they get in the car and go drive to Hudson Card's house and uh, basically tell that guy, you know, here's what we're doing. This is uh, how we're going to use you to do it. We need you to uh, choose Purdue when you pick where you're going to, to play college football. And not long after that, um, that's become kind of famous in these parts anyway now is, uh, you know, Ryan Walters on, on Twitter, on Instagram, tipping his cap and just kind of bopping his head to the, some rap music. And within, you know, an hour or two, Hudson Card has said, I'm committing to Purdue. So that's maybe some of the swagger that Jeff Brown didn't have. And he wasn't very big on social media and stuff like that. But I think that the staff realizes the importance of that and kind of having that public persona that you can you can put out there through social media to appeal to uh, recruits and, and, you know, people who are probably on their phones uh, every chance they're not playing football. So uh, once they got Hudson card, I think they felt like 
okay, we've got our guy established. He's in place. He was the number one quarterback when he stepped on campus in January. And everybody who uh, is associated with this program, coaches, players, you know, staff, they, uh, they, they'll tell you that Hudson Card looks the part. He's a, he's a really good quarterback that's going to come in here and uh, probably be a guy that at the end of the season we're talking about as a potential all-Big Ten quarterback um, in his first real year of starting. He, he started five games at Texas, but it never felt like he was the, the true guy there. And it was his, his dream school. But back when he was coming out of high school, every college in the country wanted Hudson Card. And he was, you know, kind of, it sounds like Texas was where he always wanted to go. So that's where he went. And then he got there and they have a Heisman Trophy candidate, a quarterback that he's competing with. And he's thinking, I might not get a play here much uh, during my career. And uh, so, you know, he's, I think he's ready to prove that uh, I am the man and his receivers love him. His offensive line loves him. Uh, the team voted him captain basically unanimously, it sounds like almost. So uh, just to have that impact in such a short time tells you that he's a guy that everybody looks up to and uh, a guy that probably is going to be uh, the make or break for how good Purdue can be this season. How will he compare to Aiden O'Connell? Aiden O'Connell is, um, I know he just lit up the NFL preseason, um, basically the best quarterback in the preseason, but uh, Aiden O'Connell was a drop back passer. He wasn't real athletic. He wasn't going to take off and beat you with his legs, but if he had time in the pocket, he would pick you apart with accuracy. And, um, you know, that was impressive in its own way to watch, but I think Hudson Card is is more athletic. He can take off with his feet. He can, you know, scramble around and, and make plays when, there's not a play to be made. So that will definitely be be something different that fans haven't seen for a few years and uh, something I'm really looking forward to because, you know, I don't think that Hudson Card is a run for his quarterback, but having that ability to run makes the defense have to respect that and um, hopefully opens up some some plays for some other guys because you've got to basically have somebody watching the quarterback at all times. And if you don't, you pick up seven or eight easy yards and, and move the chains if you can keep doing that. Defensively for Purdue interesting. Obviously, you bring in a defensive-minded head coach who turned around an Illinois program, what feels like happened overnight. It just feels like Illinois went from absolutely you know, nothing into, wow, this team's a defensive monster. Um, and, and then you come into Purdue, you got Cam Allen back there at safety, Santa Sikane, um, got two great linebackers there. Do you think, you know, I've never, I think in recent memory, fans have never thought, oh, Big Ten West defense, oh, you know, Purdue. You usually jump to Iowa or Wisconsin. Do you think that that identity might change under Ryan Walters, especially with these guys coming back? Yeah, coming and when, when you think of Purdue defense, it was usually like an individual player, like a, a George mm-hmm. Karloftis or a Ryan Kerrigan. There was never like the defense as a whole, not since, you know, the, the early 2000s anyway. Uh, and I think that this defense maybe has a chance to do that where um, Nick Scorton, formerly Nick Carraway, um, sounds like he was the star of the spring and a guy that's probably going to uh, make a lot of plays for Purdue this year. But feels like all of these guys, the, the safeties you just mentioned, are experienced. They have a, a true freshman who is going to start in Dylan Thieneman. Um, Yanni Karloftis is a, you know, a name. He's a local kid and his brother's playing for the Kansas City Chiefs and just won a Super Bowl and, and was a star at Purdue. So. Um, maybe a lot of guys that aren't going to be NFL players or, you know, first, second round draft picks, but as a whole, 
a chance to be a lot better as a unit. And uh, I think that everybody kind of really bought in. It's easy when Ryan Walters had such success at Illinois doing this um, that you say, hey, this get after the quarterback, this running around, covering sideline to sideline and um, no real defined roles on every single play. It sounds like it's a lot more be instinctive, be an athlete, be a football player than it is. Okay, if they line up in this formation, this is exactly the job you have to do when and anything else is wrong. So uh, to kind of answer your question in short, I do think that collectively this can be a really good defense. Um, there's a lot of potential there with the players they have, with the players that the Boilermakers brought in, that this thing can can maybe take off. And I don't know if it's going to be the, the second best rated defense in the country like Illinois was last year, but um, – Anything is an improvement over, you know, what we saw at times last year, and especially with the lasting images of, of LSU in that bowl game. Yeah, 63 to 7. That's a, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of running for a defense usually after a game like that. I don't know if it's running if you end the season that way, but still should be interesting to see how they develop. I, and I think I like what you said there about the cohesive unit because I think you look at the best defenses in the country – you know, it's not led by one or two player. It is a cohesive unit. It's seven guys in and out, move as one, get to the ball, get to the tackle. Um, it sounds like that's something that is going to happen under head coach Ryan Walter. So that will be exciting to see. Want to ask about the Big Ten West. We, we're not going to have Big Ten divisions for so much longer. Um, but this being one of the final years of the Big Ten West, I, I do want to ask, you know, we have Wisconsin under Luke Fickle. That's a name. Um, and he's bringing back a lot of talent, one of the best running backs in the country. You have Kirk Ferretz at Iowa, who, you know, we'll see if their offense can live up to the contract of 20-something points per game. But if not, you know, they're still going to be stout defensively. Uh, but then you have the, you know, people often forget about Minnesota with P.J. Fleck. They can be dominant. What do you see as the Big Ten West as a whole, and what are Purdue's chances to maybe get back to that Big Ten championship in year one? Yeah, and for so long it just felt like Wisconsin had a stranglehold on this thing, and it was because you don't have to deal with Ohio State and Michigan, Penn State. You know, like it was basically an easy path for Wisconsin to be in the the uh, Big Ten championship, and then Iowa uh, broke through and, and got there. Um, I think Nebraska one year um, was in the Big Ten championship game, which um, you know that I always that's a team I always that, forget about that one. That's the one I always like. I'm like, wait, Nebraska made it once? Yeah. Uh, but I feel like it's wide open, and, and I know that um, Cleveland.com, since there is no preseason uh, predictions from the media for all Big Ten teams for, uh, you know, predicted standings, things like that, uh, they do a poll every year, and, and the 30-something media members that, that filled one out uh, when he compiled everything had Purdue finishing sixth in the West. And uh, at Big Ten Media Days, the guys were adamant, like, you know, that's a slap in the face. We won this thing last year. What happened that you thought basically dropped almost all the way to the bottom of, of the standings in, in you know a few short months? But the reality is, there's a lot of unknowns. There's you know with the new coaches, with the new players, with a new quarterback. Though he looked really good when he was playing at Texas, uh, he's he's still a new guy in the Big Ten, and um, I think that probably was based a lot more on question marks. So um, I would think that. To be honest, I, I think that Wisconsin probably is the, the team that's favored to win that thing. But um, it's a whole jumbled mess probably. And Purdue has a chance with a, a home game early in the season on a Friday night against Wisconsin that has been kind of the arch nemesis for Purdue, the team that no matter what the makeup of the rosters is, Purdue can't seem to, to beat Wisconsin. If you win that game, you shake up everything. 
um, and really put yourself in a position where it's like, okay, we can go do this whole thing again and get back to that Big Ten championship game. Uh, I'm not expecting that, but that's probably, you know, if everything goes as well as it could, um, a possibility. Yeah, it should be interesting. I, I think the Big Ten West is what I love about the Big Ten West overall as a division is it just feels like every year you just don't know what's going to pop up. Like, is Nebraska going to be decent and be 500? Is Wisconsin going to be actually good under Luke Fick, or is it going to take a step back? It's, we just there's a lot of unknowns with this side of the conference every single year. Whereas on the East side, you kind of have the Ohio State, you have the Michigans, you have the Penn State. You know that's usually going to be the top three in some form of order. And then you have the Indiana Rutgers, Maryland, and they'll figure it out amongst themselves. So it should be fun to see. I, I, I like what you're kind of saying about the just, you know, this is a team that, yes, has a lot of unknowns. But this is also a division in football that usually has a lot of unknowns, especially this year with three new head coaches coming in on this side alone. So I think it, there's a lot of questions there. When you look at the schedule, I, I don't like doing schedules game by game. I, I feel like that's pretty straightforward and we can do that and it, it's we can read through that. But one thing I do want to ask is just kind of from your perspective – what you've seen during preseason. I know you said they've been very reserved with what they're letting you watch, what they're letting you see. When you look at the schedule, when you look at the opponents, when you look at the week-by-week matchups, what do you think is the ceiling? If everything goes well for this Purdue Boilermaker team, this is what it will look like. And if what's the realistic floor of, okay, if this does not go well, this is as bad as it could get. Well, there's obviously always the injury variables that play into that too, that, these things change over the course of the season and um, somebody's going to get hurt at some point. That's just the reality that, that is football. But uh, I think that, you know, the, the ceiling is Purdue finds a way to, to, you know, capture some magic and, and get back to that big 10 championship game. And then it's, you know, one game that you don't have to be better than the other team the whole season. You have to be better than them for the entirety of a game. And uh, that seems a lot more possible than, sitting here right now and saying Purdue could win the Big Ten Championship. Um, more uh, probable is that Purdue is in the bowl hunt throughout the year. You get towards the end of the season and it's uh, can Purdue get that sixth win and get into a bowl game? And I think in a lot of ways that would be a success um, this season if, if Purdue gets to a bowl game, maybe wins a bowl game even, and uh, has momentum going forward. And then, you know, this thing can really take off because some of the recruits that, that Purdue is getting right now uh, has people already excited for next year and the year after, but uh, recruits aren't tied here until they're signed. So I think, you know, you go out and, and you don't do well, and maybe that's the the floor that you're talking about. You know, you, you go out and you win three or four games this season, and those recruits are saying, you know, I don't want to play for, for a team that's, you know, not going to win or, the, you know, the system that I was told was going to be successful isn't, and then they decide to go somewhere else or, you know, whatever happens. But, um, I think that's probably uh worst case scenario is Purdue ends up, you know, only winning three or four games this season. And um, people, as we kind of talked about early on here, uh, start to think, you know, this coach doesn't have it or this coach isn't living up to, to what we thought uh, this team was going to be. So uh, he's going to be here for four years, no matter what, I'm sure, because you got to give, I believe, a head coach four years to get his own guys, his own system in place. And, um, those recruits need to know when they commit here that that's going to be my coach for the entirety of my college career, which, no, you know, nobody stays four years anymore almost. But still, uh, the, I think that, you know, 
most likely a six, seven win team. Um, high point is probably playing in the Big Ten championship game again. And, you know, worst case scenario, you're you're probably talking about a three win team. I talked to Zach Osterman yesterday and he kind of told me when I asked him a similar question is with on the Indiana side of things is he would not be surprised if it came down to a five and seven team going to Ross Aid to play Purdue or excuse me, a five and six team playing Purdue to try to get to a bowl eligibility. Do you feel like that could might be the same boat for Purdue where they're walking into that uh, that bucket game being yeah. kind of five and six looking for that bowl eligibility? Absolutely. And, you know, that would bring a lot of fan interest if basically the winner of that game gets bowl eligibility. I mean, it's a huge deal anyway, uh, just for the old open bucket and the rivalry and all of that. But um, there's been multiple times throughout the years where whether it was Indiana or whether it was Purdue, you know, needed that last win to get into a bowl game. And, um, you know, in cases when they pull it off, it's a huge deal. It feels like a championship. And, uh, you know, if both teams are in that scenario, it's going to be, you know, even more heated, even more fun for the fans. And uh, when you get the alcohol sales involved in all of that, probably uh, some things with the fans that, that we can't mention. But, um, you know, that I think that would be, you know, selfishly, as somebody who covers Purdue, I, I want the team to be successful. It's easier to, to write about, um, but that would be a, a great storyline going into the the final game of the regular season is like the winner of this game is, is making a bowl. So now it's it's all on the line. We, we've seen it before over the past couple of years, so it should be interesting to see if it happens again. You know, we always I, I think as an Indiana podcast, we really hope it's too, you know, eight win teams fighting for nine, not two five win teams fighting for six. Right. But we'll see. I think it'll be exciting to see either way. I want to ask about Ross State. I, I know there's a lot of stadium upgrades coming in. Um, what is it going to look like this week against Fresno State? What can fans expect from the fan experience? Yeah. Um, so they've, they've been doing a lot of renovations and I think these construction crews are working around the clock because if you drive by the stadium, even at one in the morning, the lights are on and you know, people are in there working. Um, so. There was a lot of uh, fans who were uh, maybe of the belief that this thing is not going to be ready for week one. And for Purdue Athletics, it was like, no, this thing has to be ready for week one. So uh, it will be kind of a different feel. The team's going to come in from the opposite side of the stadium than it usually did, um, coming out of the Tiller Tunnel, named for former coach Joe Tiller. But you're coming in basically under the fans. And running out onto the field as opposed to they used to walk across the street and basically can see them coming into the stadium and then running out onto the field. Um, I think the game day experience is going to be extremely heightened with all of these um, upgrades. Uh, you know, it's going to be more fan friendly from just where you want to get food or, you know, beer or whatever it is. And, and you can walk around the, the concourse and still feel like you're, you're able to see the game and things like that. Um, but I'm excited. I, to be honest, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, and I'm sure there's still a few surprises, but they've added just a lot of little things that fans seem to like. Uh, you know, the steps that go into the stadium now are painted to say, hail, hail, the old Purdue coming down. And I saw on Twitter yesterday all these fans commenting, I love this. This is, And it's such a simple thing. All they did was put paint on the steps. It could have been done for years, but um, those nice little features and touches, you know, go a long way, and fans feeling like, you know, this is a, a big time program that I'm supporting here. Well, it's amazing to see just the investment, I think, and continued investment and just the fan experience and know that fans are paying tickets for football. Yes, but any way you can make that better. Um, I, I think that's been a big emphasis for 
not only Purdue, but also on the Indi- you know, Indiana University side of things. I know the athletic department's adding suites this year. I know Purdue has added that. I know Purdue's finished their end zone. So I, I saw a picture of Ross Day. I was like, this looks awesome. I mean, this is like a completely that end zone new establishment looks really cool. I think it's going to add a nice little fan experience and It'll be cool to see kind of how they, if they get it done by week one, I think they'll do it, but I mean, it is an engineering school, so they should be able to find a way to do it, right? Um, final one for you, week one, Fresno State. Um, interesting opponent in the sense they won their final nine games last year. You wrote an article earlier this week basically saying Ryan Walters only gets one game one during his tenure at Purdue. So just... What do you expect from this game, and what do you expect, you know, fan reaction to be to Ryan Walters' first experience with the Boilermakers? Yeah, and one of the things that Jeff Brom did, which was in some ways a blessing and a curse, was uh, you didn't have those, you know, week one cupcake opponents or whatever that Power Five teams sometimes will go go pick somebody that we can beat 63 to nothing, all of our guys can play, pull the starters at halftime, everybody's happy because we're 1-0. Uh, you know, he, he really came in here and even really started before that um, getting other, you know, top-notch opponents. And uh, Fresno State, as you mentioned, is a team that uh, people know who Coach Jeff Tedford is. He, he coached Marshawn Lynch at Cal. He coached Aaron Rodgers at Cal. He was hugely successful there. And then last year, the team, I think, started um, one and three, one and four, whatever it was, and, like, yeah, ran off, uh, won a conference title, won a bowl game and has a lot coming back and got a, a really good quarterback through the transfer portal. So um, this is a, a test that you don't get to just dip your toes in the water to start the season. You're diving in head first, like we're playing a top-notch opponent. Can we go out and match that? And wouldn't surprise me if Fresno State came here and won this game. Uh, I, I think it's probably going to be a game that goes down to the final minutes of the fourth quarter. And um, teams are looking at their kicker and saying, you know, is this is this guy the X factor of our team? Because it might come down to a, a last second kick or a last minute kick. Um, I think it's great because you get that test right away. Um, we're going to find out what um, Purdue is made of basically from the get go. And then you turn around and go to Virginia Tech the next week. So it doesn't get any easier. Um, this this schedule is pretty brutal. It's probably one of the toughest when you look at the whole 12 game schedule uh, in the country. When you factor in that this year Purdue is playing Ohio State, is playing Michigan, you know, you have those. Uh, nationally relevant powerhouse programs that are probably going to be ranked in the top five or top 10. Yeah, it should be exciting to see. And then final thing for you, just for fans who are going up to West Lafayette this week, who might be listening to the pod, who's a couple players that they might not be familiar with that you think they might want to keep their eye on might be a fan favorite this season. I mentioned uh, Nick Scorton. He's, uh, he's a guy that, and maybe it was a Homer biased uh, pick, but we had to pick our, our, Big Ten Defensive Player of the Years, and um, I picked him third, and he, it was the only vote he got in the in the thing. But uh, just based on what everybody said in the spring about this guy, is man, he's legit. He's only a sophomore. Uh, had some big moments last year, late in the season when he got some opportunities, and it sounds like he, they're going to unleash him to to get after the the quarterback. I think he's got a chance to be really, really good. Um, but then it's just you know. The, the transfers, um, you've got some transfer corners that uh, seem to be pretty good, but people are going to want to know who's going to, to catch the football, especially when you're running an air raid offense. And last year it was so reliant on Charlie Jones, who was getting 10 to 15 targets a game, Payne Durham at tight end, who was getting a lot of targets. Both of those guys just made NFL rosters yesterday. So 
you have to replace that talent who steps up and is the guy to, to get the, you know, the ball thrown his way. And uh, this is another situation where it's like, it doesn't seem like there's one guy. It seems like there's four or five guys that are going to make up the production of what one guy did last year. But uh, TJ Sheffield's been a captain or uh, named a captain and probably a guy ready for a breakout season. Um, and then uh, Deion Burks, as uh, I guess we were told this week, he's the fastest guy on the team. And, uh, somebody who had a lot of potential last year would have caught probably uh, a major play in the, the bowl game, but he ends up falling and hitting his head and getting carted off the field. And, and for him to even be back, uh, it's probably a big deal for this team. And I think those two guys are guys that could be big impact players um, that probably a lot of people don't know or, or haven't seen a lot of yet. Sam King from the Journal and Carrier in West Lafayette. Sam, thanks for joining us today. You can follow more of Sam's work on Twitter, X. I, are we officially calling it X? I, I don't know what if it is official yet, officially, but be sure to follow him for all the Boilermaker coverage at Samuel T. King. Sam, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll have you back on. We'll catch up maybe later on in the season. Absolutely. Thank you very much. All right, that's all for our show today. Shout out to Sam King for coming on. I appreciate him providing some much-needed insight from West Lafayette. Still familiarizing myself with Purdue Boilermakers. I'm getting used to it. Uh, it's going to take some time, but I'll tell you what. I, I From what I've heard from Sam, what I've seen online in my research, I, I really like this Ryan Walters guy. I think he's going to be a great coach for Purdue. I think it's going to take time, but I, I think Purdue fans are going to grow to like him. I think they're going to grow to like his style. And th This is a guy who wants to be there. And at least for right now, wants to be here and wants this opportunity. So I think that's something Purdue fans, if you're listening, should embrace, get excited about. They have a big one against Fresno State. That's going to be a game to watch this weekend. I'm really excited to see just how good Fresno State has been and what Purdue is trying to do. I think it's going to be really, really fun to watch. So as usual, if you really enjoyed the pod, do us a favor, Purdue fans, because we're going to talk about Purdue a lot as well as other teams from around the state of Indiana. Be sure to like the podcast, subscribe on our YouTube channel, and be sure to stay tuned to all our episodes. Rate us if you really enjoyed it. That really helps us out if you rate us on Spotify and share it with your friends as well. So this was the All In Podcast. I've been your host, Griffin Gonzalez. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. Be kind to each other and go make today the best day of your life. We'll see you later.